Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to everyone who is away on Memorial Day weekend. So I'd invite everyone to turn to Romans 1, chapter 3. Yes, sorry, not chapter 3, Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Not moving that fast yet. And then we'll pray. All right, let's pray. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your illumination and your guiding light. And we entreat you to send the Holy Spirit to illuminate and enlighten us today as we sit under and meditate on your word and yield before you, Divine Spirit, to teach us, to preach to our hearts, and write your truth on the very fibers of our being, that we may not only hear, but therein understand, know, and then live your word, delighting in your marvelousness, delighting in your light, delighting in your grace, delighting in your mercy, and delighting in the best there is, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Holy Trinity, we pray, amen. Okay. So our scriptures, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Our focus today is, is verse 3. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So now we're in verse number three. Now verse number three is a subordinate clause to verse number one. Verse number one ends by speaking about the gospel. In verse number two, Paul then gives us more information about the gospel, saying it was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, i.e. the Old Testament. Now in verse number three, Paul's going to expand upon what the gospel is further, and the first thing Paul says is that the gospel is concerning God's Son. So God's gospel, or God's message, concerns God's Son. There is no gospel, there is no Christian faith, there is no Christian church without Christ. Because the good news is about a person. The good news is about the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good news, and we're focusing on the person of Christ so much because in contrast to any other system of belief in the world, you cannot have Christianity, you cannot have the Christian faith without the person of Christ. You can have Marxism, you can have Buddhism, you can have capitalism without Karl Marx, without Buddha, and without Adam Smith. In any other school of thought, you can have the idea floating and circulating around without a person. But the Christian faith, the gospel, simply falls apart 
without the person the gospel message is about. Anywhere else in the world, after the founder dies, the idea can live on and still be credible. But Jesus Christ is living eternally. And if, hypothetically speaking, for one moment, Jesus stopped existing, there no longer would be any gospel. Hence, the gospel is about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Romans 1-2 tells us that the gospel is not new, but is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, which points forward to Christ. And now when Paul begins explaining the minutia of what the gospel is, the first thing he tells us is that the gospel is concerning his son, God's son, Jesus. Paul begins to tell us what the gospel is by first telling us who Jesus is. Who is our Redeemer? Christ. Who is our Lord? Christ. And who is Christ? He is the Son of God, the gospel concerning His Son. So the first thing Paul tells us about Christ is that He is the Son of God. Son is a relational term in that you can't have a son without a father. There are no fatherless sons, and there are no sonless fathers. So again, this is important to understand. The first thing Paul says about the gospel is about a person, and he describes that person using a relational term because Christ is the Son of God, which therefore points to the fact that he is in a relationship with the Father. Now, when the Bible speaks of Jesus being the Son of God, someone tell me, what does that mean? Let's, let's take a step back. In the Bible in general, when someone is a son of something, what does that mean? Because that's different to when the 21st century we say, I am a son of my Father. It means different things. So, biblically speaking, when you are a son of blank, what does that mean? Sonship means being the same substance of or being the same essence as. It's the same nature. It's the same substance. So, for example, when Jesus called John, uh, James and John, sons of thunder, that did not mean that thunder had a baby. What it meant is that there was an essence, there was a quality, there was a substance about them that was striking, that was powerful. So this is a critical point to understand because when we say son in the 21st century and the Bible says son, it means different things. Jesus being the son of God means he is God. Why? Because sonship equals being the same substance of or being the same essence as, right? In the Bible as well, sonship also refers to obedience. It means following in the footsteps of. So in both uses, when the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God, both use, uses of the word son apply. That Jesus is the Son, the same substance of, the same essence as God, but he's also fully, totally, and completely to the command and the law of God. So in plain English, when the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God, 
That means Jesus is God. Now, son is not a title that's assumed in time. Jesus did not begin as something else and then at some point become the Son of God. Jesus always was. Jesus always is. Jesus always will be the Son of God. For as John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and that Word became flesh. So the deity, the divinity, the fact that Jesus is God has never changed, will never change, and is a fabric of biblical truth that stands true from eternity past to eternity future. But not only is Jesus the Son of God, he's also the only begotten Son, which is a special category in and of itself. Jesus is in a class all by himself. When the Father tells the Son, you are my only begotten Son, which we first read about in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and is then interpreted for us in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. When God looks at his son and says, you are my only begotten son, that is not pointing to a change of essence. That's not pointing to a change of nature or character. That has to do with the declaration of a particular status. Let's explain this. Before the resurrection, for example, in Luke chapter 3, when God looks down on his son being baptized by John the Baptist by the River Jordan, he says, this is my beloved son, beloved son. At the transfiguration, the father looks at the son and says, this is my beloved son, he's mine, listen to him. But then what the Bible tells us originally prophesied in Psalm number 2, uh, verse 7, and then interpreted for us in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, is that now after the resurrection, Christ is declared the only begotten Son. Why? Because of the resurrection. Christ is in a class all by himself. We're about to speak about the Trinity or that we serve one God and three persons. But there's only one member of the Godhead who lived as a man. There's only one member of the Godhead that was crucified and died on a cross. There's only one person of the Godhead who rose from the dead. That is Jesus Christ, the Son. And all of that is now what makes Jesus Christ the only begotten Son. And I make that critically important distinction because when you read the Bible and read about the adoption of those who are saved by Jesus Christ, the Bible refers to us as sons and daughters of God, which means we are adoptive members into the family of God, but our substance or essence is not divine. But Christ now, being the head, he and he alone is the only begotten son. Good. So here's what Ligonier.org gives us clarity about in describing the fact that Christ is the only begotten Son. Here's what Ligonier.org says, quote, What makes the three persons of the Trinity 
differ from one another is a difference in relations, not in attributes. From the early church fathers through the Protestant reformers to today, Orthodox Christianity has said that what makes the father the father is that he is eternally unbegotten, and what makes the son the son is that he is eternally begotten." End quote. Now that's a weighty statement which mentions a word, Trinity, which speaks to a core doctrine of the Christian faith. So someone please tell me, when I refer to the Holy Trinity, what am I referring to? Because we're talking a lot about the Son and the Father, right? But we left someone out. We left out the Holy Spirit. And all three persons speak to the Holy Trinity. So when I say Holy Trinity, someone please explain to me, what am I talking about? The doctrine of the Holy Trinity is a core, critically important idea of the Christian faith because when we speak about the Trinity, we're speaking to the nature or essence of who God is. One of the distinguishing characteristics of God in the Bible is that he is holy. Another distinguishing characteristic is that God is a Trinity, which means God is God. There only is one God. But we worship and serve one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are each co-equally and co-eternally God. We do not serve three gods. We are not polytheists. There is one God and three persons. Now, when you hear that, you say, that sounds strange. That sounds weird. How could we serve one God and three persons? And my answer is exactly, because we're now describing the nature or essence of God, not an iPhone or a children's toy. So of course it's going to be strange or alien to us because this describes he who is holy and separate than you and I are. And that's important to understand because while each of the three persons of the Godhead are all God, they, they relate to one another in a particular way. That what, that's what makes their personages distinct. For example, Jesus is the second member of the Godhead who lived as a man, was crucified, rose from the dead. The person who regenerates us or turns our hearts that we can respond to the gospel is the Holy Spirit. The person of the Trinity that knows when the world is going to end, which has been preordained before the world began, is the Father. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity, we serve one God in three persons. Does the word Trinity appear in the Bible? No. So where did I get that word from then? Did I make it up? It came down through the ages. Good. And I make sure we're going to have a very biblical answer to this question because, particularly Jehovah's Witnesses, whenever I get into a dialogue with Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll tell me the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. And I'll say, I agree with you. Neither does iPhone. Neither does Cheetos, neither does Coca-Cola. That doesn't mean they're real or not exist. 
When Isaac Newton was sitting under an apple tree hundreds of years ago and an apple fell on his head, he said, hmm, this is curious. What is the force that compelled this apple to hit me on the head? He then used a word to describe the phenomenon. That word was gravitas in Latin, gravity. He didn't make it up, he didn't create gravity, he just used a word, so now when describing the phenomenon to people, they could understand. So yes, Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible at all, but we use the word to describe a Bible fact, which is, which is all over the text from cover to cover. Now someone tell me, where is the first place in the Bible the... Uh, the suggestion or the idea of the Trinity is mentioned. Genesis 1. Amen. How? Explain it. Let us thank God in our own image in that place. Earlier, earlier than that. The Father said, let us. No. You, you were right. You said Genesis 1 1. So where in Genesis 1 1? I love the eagerness. I love it. Oh, <laughs> I did say that. I love the passion. <laughs> okay, Saint, let's not fight. Let's not fight. Okay. The first place in the Bible, the doctrine of the Trinity is mentioned is in the third word of the Bible. In Hebrew, the Bible begins, Barashit bara Elohim. In the beginning, created God. Elohim is the name of God, but Elohim is plural. Because any word in Hebrew that ends in im, like Hasidim, any word in Hebrew that, that ends in im is plural. But here's the catch. Whenever Elohim, the name of God, is conjugated, even though it's plural, it's not God are, it's God is. Which means in the, the, the Hebrew name of God itself, there's plurality, but there's also singularity. Then the text will go on to say, then God said, let there be light, the sun, but the spirit of God was hovering. There's Trinitarian action in the very, 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 very beginning, but in the Bible's third word, in the very name of God itself, you begin to lay the foundation of the fact that, there, that we serve one God and three persons. So, having the idea of what the Trinity is is crucially important because that gives us a key insight into who God is. One God, three persons, co-equally, co-eternally God. The difference of the persons is how they relate to one another and therefore how they function. The very fancy theological term is ontological equality with economic subordination. In plain English, of the same essence, of the same nature, all fully and equally God, but in what they do, there are distinctions. Okay.
So now, so what does Jesus being only begotten actually mean? It means that from eternity past, Jesus has always been God, and he has also related to another person, the Trinity, in a very special and unique way. So the way an infinite, holy God chose to describe his relational essence to finite creatures is to describe it in terms of a father and an only begotten son. So in Romans 1-2, we know the entire Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ and is a testimony about Christ. But the testimony of Christ being the Son isn't just promised in the Old Testament. That testimony continues in the New Testament. The difference is that in the Old Testament, the Son was promised, but in the New Testament, the Son is proclaimed, like John the Baptist didn't say everyone the Messiah is coming, he pointed to the one next to him and said, this man, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, the Lamb who will take away the sins of the world. So the Father testified to the Sonship of Christ in Luke 3.22. And I would write these verses down in a margin so you have a clear list of verses that testifies to the sonship and therefore the deity of Christ. So Luke 3:22. 3, 3 chapter 3 verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him, Jesus, in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, "You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased." The Son, or Jesus, testifies about himself in John 5, 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. That's John 5, 17. In John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33, John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now that verse from John is critically important because you have many people nowadays who say when Jesus said he was the son of God, he didn't mean he was God, which is wrong. That is not factual. You can call the Jews of that day what you want, but when Jesus said, I am the son of God, they knew exactly what he was saying, that he was essentially calling himself God. As John chapter 10 verses uh, 30 to 33 says, and let us also not forget the reason why the Jews arrested Jesus and said, crucify him is what? Because he said he was the son of God. Because he said he was God. In Luke chapter 22, verses 70, the text says, and they, the council of elders, all said, are you the son of God then? And Jesus said to them, yes, I am. But not only that, not only is a testimony of Christ historical, the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts each and every day to all believers that Jesus is the Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.23 Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by 
the Holy Spirit. But not only that, you have Father, you have Son, you have Holy Spirit testifying to the Sonship of Christ. All of the apostles in the New Testament also testify to Christ's Sonship. Colossians 1, 13 to 17. This is what Paul writes. For God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Christ, is the image of the indivisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So all of that solidifies, formalizes, and testifies to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, hence Jesus is God. And this reality in and of itself increases and expands our appreciation of God's grace. Because if God could send his only begotten beloved Son into the world to die for us, that essentially means a father allows his own son to be sacrificed for the sake of his elect. So the uniqueness, the only begottenness of Christ, and that relational understanding warms our hearts and increases our awe of, why, of, of the fact that God sent his son and that the son died for us. Question. The question is um, confusion about the word begotten. It's not clear to me what a begotten means. Because, all right, I'll be perfectly honest. Um, I like honesty. Yeah. <laughs> what you, I, I was burning to ask this question because the whole time we've been reading the scripture, I've seen son as relational. And, um, you know, as a descendant, you know. Um, but I know when it comes to God, it's, it's a whole different other. So, just, and when, I think there's a statement you made was, he became his only begotten when he was risen from the dead. Declared to be. Oh, declared to be. So, so, so remember, and what you're asking is, uh, is a good question to ask. So the question essentially is, how do we actually digest and compute the language we use when we say Jesus is the only begotten Son. But now remember, the fact that Jesus was, is, always, will be the Son never changes, right? From the very, very beginning, Jesus has, has never stopped ever being the um, Son of God. But remember, whenever God reveals something to us, right, he's not revealing it to us for his benefit. He's revealing it to us for our benefit. So the, the language or the route by which God conveys the reality that a declaration has been made after the resurrection is that now he's referred to as the only begotten son. He's uh, the first of a particular type of resurrection, which makes him now the head of the entire body, which is the church. So, Because remember, Psalm 2-7 is messianic, meaning it's ultimately pointing forward to Christ. And in the text, God says 
Today I have begotten you. What does that mean? The Apostle Paul interprets it for us in Acts 13.33, where God was essentially saying that today was the historical event of the resurrection, where Christ is now declared, not made, declared to us, to human beings, this is the one. Have faith and believe in him, the only begotten son. Does that make things clear? Okay. And, and the other way to begin computing it, again, Jesus' deity never changes, but when you are a son or daughter of someone, you have the same stuff in you, right? Like my DNA is equal to my father and my mother. It's a meshing. So the same human, fleshly, natural substance that they have, they give to me, and we're therefore equal in that, you know, having human DNA and the same uh, human nature. Very good, let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for your wisdom, your leadership, and your guidance, and we thank you for igniting a flame of inquiry and desire, and for touching our hearts and minds that we seek to probe, scrutinize, to know, and to wrestle with your word that we, in the end, may all come to a unified, harmonious understanding of your glorious Son and your glorious essence. We thank you, O Lord, for the gift and the opportunity to sit under your word today and entreat you to be with us as we go through our Bible studies day by day and week by week. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.